0: Threads from the National Tapestry is now on YouTube. Search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. On the channel, you'll find full podcast episodes paired with relevant photos and maps about each topic. It's another great way to listen to the show. Just search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. It was over 140 years ago that
1: the American Red Cross was founded. Though most know its founder... Few know the details of her lifetime of charity, sacrifice, and service. This is an attempt to correct that. This is the story of an American pioneer, an American hero. This is the story of Clara Barton.
0: The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story.
1: It was Friday, April the 19th, 1861. And like telegraphic wildfire, word swept into an already anxious Washington City that the 6th Massachusetts Infantry had been attacked while marching through Baltimore. Twelve citizens had been killed, four soldiers, several wounded. At the B&O station in the nation's capital, a crowd gathered to meet the bloodied regiment. Upon their arrival, the wounded were lowered to the platform. One woman in particular took charge. She recognized many from her home, North Oxford, Worcester County, Massachusetts. Using handkerchiefs, she took the lead in dressing the wounds of 30-plus men. Later, housed in the United States Senate chamber, this same woman, a copyist in the United States Patent Office, followed up. She visited. She resupplied and personally covered all the expenses. She did so because she knew this was important. That woman, that humanitarian, was Clara Barton. Born on Christmas Day, 1821, she was 39, and though a slender five feet in height, was physically strong. Crowned with brown, silky hair, she often parted it down the middle and then gathered it all into a bun. Her face was round, her mouth expressive, eyes dark brown. She was single and chose to remain that way for the rest of her days. In short, to her, holy matrimony was a bond with death. An ardent Republican, Clara Barton, was a crusader. She hated all restrictions on women and obviously firmly believed that all women should have equal rights. Early in her life, she taught school in Massachusetts and opened the first public school in Bordentown, New Jersey. Her physical and moral strength came from her father, Stephen, who, as a captain, served with mad Anthony Wayne in the Indian Wars that erupted up in Michigan territory. Her father made her a superb horsewoman and shot, and for his attention, she idolized her warrior father, that was not the case with her mother, Sarah. Barton found her ferocious, profane, and quick to anger. As a child, she often heard her mother and father argue. The youngest of five, and nicknamed Tot, her mother scorned her, and that triggered reoccurring nightmares and depression. Recalling her childhood, Barton said, I remember nothing but fear. All of that contributed to her repugnance for marriage. Proposed to, on several occasions, she rejected each. In 1854, she left Massachusetts and relocated in Washington City. It was there she got a job at the only agency that offered women a position, the United States Patent Office, where she was one of four females. There, she prepared handwritten copies of patents, records and annual reports at eight cents a word. That being said, her salary was locked in at $900 a year. So efficient at her assigned task, she was named regular temporary clerk, and her salary was increased to an annual sum of $1,400. That did not sit well with the men she worked with. Seen as above her station, They constantly harassed her, spread rumors that she was, in their words, a slut, and bore illegitimate negroid children. Instead of cowering, the Barb's made her dig in professionally and politically. The 1856 election of James Buchanan got a rise out of her. He was soft on slavery and its extension. He was also a Democrat, and that cost her job at the Patent Office. Without work, she returned to Massachusetts, where she felt useless and lamented, I am tired of doing nothing. With Abraham Lincoln's Republican victory in 1860, she returned to Washington City, and Massachusetts Senators Charles Sumner and Henry Wilson, chairman of the Committee of Military Affairs, assisted in getting her old job back. The Lower South Secession in Round One concerned her. Round two, the Upper South haunted her, for on May the 20th, 1861, North Carolina seceded and her older brother, Stephen Jr., was there. He had moved to the northeastern part of the Old North State because of his asthma, and there developed a manufacturing village on the west bank of the Chowan River, Bartonsville, still a community in northeastern Hertford County. In a state whose 1860 slave percentage was right around 27 percent, and in a county where slaves made up 53 percent of its population, he held no slaves, preferring to employ only white workers who were from the north. There, Stephen created industry. Clara was interested in creating aid, relief. She wanted to be involved. When Civil War came in 1861, she was too inhibited to enlist as a soldier and strongly disapproving of aggressive, authoritative women like Dorothea Dix. She set her sights on becoming an independent one-woman relief agency. To raise supplies, she advertised in the Worcester Spy newspaper and wrote letters to friends asking for donations. Collecting those necessities in the nation's capital, she rented spaces near 7th and Pennsylvania Avenues. Those warehouses became her supply headquarters. Focused and committed, her crusade was interrupted when her father fell ill. To North Oxford, she returned. Though she hated to be away from the action, she, the opportunist, used her return to Massachusetts to visit the state's governor, John A. Andrew who named her as the Massachusetts State Agent in Washington City for supply distribution to soldiers from said state. Her father, though ill, ordered her to leave him, to return to her crusade to aid those in uniform, and specifically asked his daughter to take her crusade to North Carolina, where her brother lived and where the Union's Ambrose E. Burnside was currently campaigning father and Governor Andrew had given their blessings, but a Dr. Hitchcock did not. He blocked her mission to go to North Carolina. She was livid, disheartened by this rejection and heartbroken by her father's passing on the 21st of March, 1862. She, three months later, returned to Washington City and her old job at the patent office. It was at that time that the Army of the Potomac and men from Massachusetts were on the Virginia Peninsula, and not allowed to go to them, she felt empty, unneeded, but then a window of opportunity. In central Virginia, Major General John Pope was organizing a new army, the Federal Army of Virginia, and its location was accessible. In preparation, by July of 1862, she had incredibly filled three warehouses. Colonel Daniel H. Rucker, head quartermaster of the Washington Depot, was so impressed by her efforts that he gave her a wagon, driver, and a pass. Yet, before she left, Barton allowed herself one last 11-day whirlwind trip and went with the Patent Office's blessing. Extremely supportive of her mission, it allowed her leave with half pay. Bolstered with that employment security, on July the 18th she headed for New Jersey and Massachusetts to gather more supplies and secure supply lines. That accomplished, on August the 2nd she departed for the Fredericksburg, Virginia area and arrived two days later. Her uniform, a bonnet red bow at the neck, a blouse, and plain dark skirt. Coinciding with her arrival, there was action in central Virginia, and she headed for Culpepper Courthouse, where nearby the Battle of Cedar Mountain was fought August the 9th. In its aftermath, she found where Union Wounded had been collected and without sleep, toiled in a hospital for two days and nights. More casualties were found at Fairfax Station. There, some 3,000 were laid out beside tracks. In her so-called uniform, she made soup by crushing hardtack and mixing it with whiskey, wine, and water. Sweetened with coarse brown sugar, she placed the concoction in a pail and waded into the sea of wounded men. She did more than feed. For the first time, she assumed the role of battlefield nurse by making compresses, slings, removing filthy bandages, and applying tourniquets. Working at both Culpeper Courthouse and Fairfax Station, she, in one stretch, went 60 hours without sleep. Finally, she let go and collapsed in a tent flooded with water from recent rains. With left arm under her head to keep her ear out of floodwater, she slept. After about an hour of rest, a commotion roused her. Wagons were rumbling by. The army was falling back. She almost didn't make it out, for as she climbed aboard a federal train headed for the rear, Confederate cavalry dashed in, but the train made good its escape. Back in Washington City, she slept for 24 straight hours. From Saturday to late Tuesday night, she had had one hour of sleep. Though beyond exhausted, she felt a tremendous sense of accomplishment. She had found her calling. As she put it, I will stand by the soldier between the bullet and the city hospital. Soon she was on the go again. Three columns of Federals were on the move by September the 8th. In pursuit of Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, she received a brief note on the 13th which read, Harper's Ferry not a moment to be lost. Though feverish, she rushed to Colonel Rucker, her patron saint, asked for and received his permission, and off she went to reach the town at the confluence of the Potomac and Shenandoah rivers. Her wagon route took her to Frederick, Maryland, where Union stewards demanded her bread for those wounded at South Mountain, but as she put it, they did not get my bread. Harper's Ferry was her destination. The route she used was the National Road, and it ran over South Mountain via Turner's Gap. There, she saw her first battlefield. Vividly remembering it, she wrote, A mingled mass of stiffened, blackened men. She continued to try to catch up with George McClellan's Army of the Potomac, and did so when she caught up with its Ninth Corps around sunset of Tuesday, September the 16th, near a town in western Maryland, a place called Sharpsburg. That night, it rained. The next morning, a mist, but an Indian summer sun soon burned it away, and its calm interrupted by fire. Some 75 Union guns opened up off to her right. Instinctively, she moved toward the firing. Around 9 a.m., she reached a barn where some 300 men lay sprawled in every condition of distress. Close to the front line, the barn on Samuel Poffenberger's farm was taking Confederate artillery fire. It was her first experience in actual combat. Near the early morning phase of fighting that day, she was not far from the East and North Woods, the Hagerstown Pike and a thirty-acre cornfield that belonged to another farmer, David R. Miller. While there, in the yard of the Poffenburger farm, she moved toward men who were in all forms of distress. One pleaded for water. She later recalled that incident. A man lying upon the ground asked for drink. I stooped to give it, and having raised him with my right hand, was holding the cup to his lips with my left When I felt a sudden twitch of the loose sleeve of my dress, the poor fellow sprang from my hands and fell back, quivering in the agonies of death. A ball had passed between my body and the right arm which supported him, cutting through the sleeve and passing through his chest from shoulder to shoulder. Another, outside the barn door, begged her to cut out a bullet lodged in his cheek. When she opened a pocket knife, a wounded man shot through both thighs, dragged himself to help hold the soldier's head with his hands. Barton removed it. All day, her exposed position took artillery fire, which jarred the wounded and endangered all. That night, with ears ringing, mouth tasting of gunpowder, and hands that were raw, she assisted the attending surgeon. During that hellish night and down to the last available candle, the surgeon resigned himself to the fact that he would have to stop until first light. Barton then remembered she had brought four boxes of lanterns and went to get them. The surgeon, therefore, worked all night. She remained on duty for three days until all her supplies were exhausted While at Antietam, she had supplied one of the Union's 71 field hospitals. On her first actual battlefield, she had performed brilliantly as an independent battlefield nurse and may well have been the only northern female who tended that day while under fire. One wrote of her effort. In my feeble estimation, General McClellan, with all his laurels, sinks into insignificance beside... Clara Barton. On the 18th and 19th, many more arrived to help the thousands who needed help around Sharpsburg. With so many now around, she no longer felt needed and so made the 80-mile journey back to Washington City where she fell victim to typhoid fever. She survived but lost 15 to 20 pounds. While recuperating, she learned of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and fully embraced the news. Around October the 9th, she had improved enough to begin distributing supplies in nearby Alexandria, Virginia. By mid-October, she was on the road again, setting out with four Army wagons, a four-wheel ambulance, and drivers for each, all supplied by Colonel Rucker. On the 26th of October, she caught up with the Army at Berlin, Maryland. It was there her assigned drivers didn't take kindly to being ordered about by a woman, but she overcame their mutiny by killing them with kindness, preparing their dinners, eating, and chatting with them. Also there in Berlin, she spent time with her pet 21st Massachusetts, who were as excited to see her as she was to see them. They named her the regiment's daughter and even held a dress parade in her honor. With November, there was foul weather, freezing rain and exposure, and it caused one of her fingers to become acutely inflamed. A surgeon lanced it, but that did not help. At Warrenton, Virginia, her entire hand swelled, and in that condition, she sat for hours over an open fire and contracted what was called dogwood poisoning. That affliction made her face swell so badly she could only see from one eye. Enough. She returned to Washington City, but despite her suffering, returned with 1,400 sick and wounded. By December the 7th, she was headed to the new federal push on Fredericksburg. Across the river from the town, she arrived at Falmouth, and around the 10th, picked up on the confusion that reigned in Major General Ambrose Burnside's command. She overheard two generals criticizing the Army of the Potomac's future plans with its commander standing nearby. Though he heard them, he was as silent as a sphinx. It was an omen. At 3 a.m. of Thursday, December the 11th, the 50th New York engineers moved to build pontoon bridges, which will allow a federal crossing of the Rappahannock River that done, they could move to their jump-off positions and begin attacks on southern forces just to the west. At first light, Confederate fire opened up to keep those bridges from going up. A frustrated Burnside then ordered 179 guns to begin fire and only yards from where Barton was located. For two hours, the town was blasted. Finally, Burnside decided to ferry troops across to dampen Confederate fire and hopefully compel them to fall back so the pontoon bridges could be laid. The 7th Michigan, 19th and 20th Massachusetts drew the dangerous assignment and began to row across. From Barton's position at the Lacey House, she could hear urgent pleas from those making their way across the river. Row! Row! then it hit her. They would need help and she was not about to be left behind. Finally, with pontoons up and a beachhead somewhat secured, she came across. When she reached the west end of one pontoon bridge, a shell fragment tore away part of her skirt. Later, back at the Lacey House, she scribbled notes and made a list of the Union wounded who had died in the house and in the yard. She did so because she knew loved ones back home would want to know. When the great battle of Fredericksburg began Saturday, December the 13th, she was in the town. Like Antietam, there is good chance she was the only Union female in Fredericksburg. When finally she returned to the Eastern Bank and back to the Lacey House, she and others wrapped the wounded and encircled them with heated bricks to keep them from freezing. She also set up a soup kitchen on the grounds. That long night of the 13th, 14th of December, 1862, after the Union disaster that was Fredericksburg, she helped many, including a delirious officer who thought her his wife. Another thought she was his mother. Of that horrible evening, she remembered, I wrung the blood from the bottom of my clothing before I could step for the weight about my feet. She, along with others that included Louisa May Alcott, read aloud or wrote letters for the wounded. Barton stayed on the rest of the month, tending patients and carefully recording deaths and burials. And thinking of families back home, she also recorded the names of the wounded. On Christmas Day, she turned forty-one. On the last day of 1862, she was back in the nation's capital. That evening, a box arrived. In it, a hood, gloves, pair of boots and shoes, handkerchief, skirts, and a lovely dress. In the box, a note. All gifts from friends in Oxford and Worcester, Massachusetts. January of the new year was spent gathering more supplies, though she certainly had not asked for it. Antietam and Fredericksburg made her a celebrity. Officers saluted her on sidewalks. Soldiers called to pay respects. Ohio Senator Benjamin Wade and Indiana Representative Shuler Colfax held a reception in her honor. Colfax gave her a kitten. She was taken to Matthew Brady's on Pennsylvania Avenue for a photographic session shown her likeness, she didn't care for it, noting it looked like death on the pale horse and I suppressed its issue. Soon, a message arrived to visit Ward 17 at the Lincoln Hospital. What a moment it must have been for when she entered, 70 wounded soldiers either stood or raised themselves to cheer her. All the positive buzz was enough to stir the War Department to supply her. So on January the 18th, she returned to Falmouth, just across the river from Fredericksburg, but was surprised to find the United States Sanitary Commission and nurses from Dorothea Dix, who made great effort to exclude all unaffiliated female nurses. Barton didn't like the crowding. And back in Washington City, personal affairs were astir as well. Her 54-year-old brother David, thanks to Massachusetts Senator Henry Wilson, received a captain's commission in the Quartermaster Department. His assignment was not in the capital, but with the 10th Army Corps, Port Royal, South Carolina, near Hilton Head and some 60 miles south of Charleston. David's wife and four children, evidently not happy with his military role, held Clara personally responsible for his safety. Perhaps to do that more efficiently, she thought maybe the coast of South Carolina might be good for a change of scenery. Perhaps there, there would be no running into Dicks and her nurses. So, on March twenty seventh, 1863, she was ordered to Port Royal, to accompany her brother, and did so as a complete volunteer. There would be no pay. In contrast, Dick's nurses were paid $12 a month. On departure day, the 30th, she agreed to visit Brady's studio once again. And again, it did not go well. As she put it, it was a horror graph, and she suppressed this one as well. Leaving Washington City, she made her way to New York City, and on the 4th of April, steamed out of its harbor. Three days later, she arrived at Hilton Head, South Carolina, an area that had been in Union hands since November of 1861. Before the war, this was the playground for the Bufords, Rets, and Barnwells, who all had homes here. Now, the area was home to the South Atlantic blockading fleet the 10th Army Corps, and Thomas Wentworth Higginson's 1st South Carolina Colored. Freedmen schools were also here, part of what was called the Port Royal Experiment. The scene was quite different from the blasted landscape that was Virginia. Here, the conflict might even have been called polite warfare. The Atlantic was less than 20 yards from her door, and no question her arrival created a stir. She was serenaded, visited, brought flowers. She was befriended by abolitionist Mary and Francis Gage, and particularly by one Lieutenant Colonel John J. Ellwell of Cleveland, Ohio, who was the chief quartermaster of the Department of the South. He was married and had children. Despite that, and this Victorian period of conduct, Barton and Elbow were seen talking, walking, and taking horseback rides together. Her notes to him were signed, Birdie, his with John Boy. That spring of 1863, he and Barton began a relationship that included sex. Barton rationalized that it was okay as long as discretion reigned and the two realized the relationship for what it was—temporary. Discretion was made easier by the fact her quarters were next to his. Hilton Head was not only home for Clara Barton, but there were others of note nearby. Frederick Douglass had two sons in the 54th Massachusetts, which was stationed there, and Harriet Tubman was nearby at Beaufort, where she served as an unpaid union scout and spy but all there was not idyllic. With no pressing military campaign, Barton felt unneeded, yet change was in the air. Major General David Hunter was replaced by Brigadier General Quincy A. Gilmore, and the new federal commander wanted action. He wanted to sweep Confederates off Morris Island and begin the step-by-step process of besieging Charleston. Though most of Morris Island was already in Union hands, there was one Confederate fortification that had to be dealt with. It was Battery Wagner. On July 18, 1863, with both Barton and her lover, Elwell, now stationed on Folly Island with the advanced troops, Gilmore's men attacked in the vanguard, the 54th Massachusetts, and Barton not far behind. Elwell served that day as a messenger, conveying messages to and from the front. He went down. She ran to him, and together they crawled back to safety. She then, under fire, helped other wounded to the rear. 5,000 Union troops were engaged that day, and in the federal repulse, 1,515 casualties, including just over 40% of the 54th Massachusetts. For the rest of July and August, she stayed on to help. Rarely leaving the hospital tents, she ran afoul of one union physician, Dr. Samuel Green of, interestingly enough, Massachusetts. He had command of Morris Island's hospital service, and in that capacity confiscated Barton's tent and cooking utensils. Unable to combat his authority and deal with his aggressiveness toward all women, she became depressed, fell ill with acute dysentery, and retreated to Hilton Head where it took five days for her to recover. She returned to Morris Island on September the 7th, but on the 15th, obviously with Dr. Green's insistence, she received a letter from Gilmore ordering her off Morris Island. Her services? were no longer needed. She was crushed. It was a tough time, for in addition, her relationship with Elwell had cooled. She turned to her abolitionist friend, Fanny Gage, and found the 55-year-old a soulmate. Spending much time together, Gage converted Barton to the cause of women's suffrage and full equality before the law. On November the 11th, both Fanny and Clara's unhappy brother, David, left for New York. Without them, Barton was unbelievably lonely. For days on end, she felt without purpose. As to the fact that the hospitals were off-limits to her, she blamed Dr. Green and Dorothea Dix. It got worse. On December the 10th, she learned that her arrangement with the patent office, half-pay while she served soldiers was removed. Friday, December the 25th was windy, raw. It rained. She turned 42 and noted simply in her journal, one more birthday. She left Hilton Head a few days later and headed home to Massachusetts. But Washington City's activity drew her back to the nation's capital by mid-February of 1864. By then, the Sanitary Commission Dick's nurses and stocked quartermaster stores meant that although she had helped to break down barriers for other women on the battlefield, she was excluded from them now. Her independent relief workers' days had come and gone. Though her patent office job had been restored, she felt old, unneeded, obsolete. Yet there was a new buzz in the Capitol, a new commanding general was in town. Ulysses S. Grant. That night, she attended an executive mansion reception for him. Though she sensed action, none came for her. Her loneliness and depression continued as March melted into April. With spring, her spirits improved. The next month, May the 4th, there was a great stirring for Grant and George Gordon Meade's Army of the Potomac was on the move south she held out hope but no pass was extended for her to move with them then came word on may the 10th that fredericksburg was going to receive some 7 to 8000 union wounded from the violent battle of the wilderness and there were only 30 to 40 surgeons to attend to them meade called for supplies volunteer surgeons and nurses within 3 days she was there the wounded was much more than announced some 14,000 in a town of only 5,000. Conditions were so bad that she returned to Washington City and reported to Massachusetts Senator Henry Wilson and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. With their knowledge of the situation, orders were made to open private homes to union wounded and that they were to be fed from the food of the Virginia City. Barton also wrote a national appeal. She entitled it to the clergy and soldiers' friends, A Call to You from Our Suffering Wounded. 500 copies were printed and sent to the press. Soon thereafter, supplies flooded into the capital, particularly from Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, Grant's losses in the overland campaign were appalling. By June, after a month of campaigning, there had been some 54,000. Barton wanted to be at Grant's Supply Base on the Pamunkey River, but on June the 21st, she showed up at Bermuda 100 and the headquarters of the Army of the James, which was under Major General Benjamin Butler. She and Butler clicked. He ordered his medical staff to give her aid and assistance. Not far from this post, she also reported to the main hospital at Point of Rocks. She was in her element the only woman, and in charge of nursing and diet for one section of the hospital that included blacks. And she was definitely needed, for the searing summer heat brought diarrhea, dysentery, and scurvy. Trench warfare also brought about shell shock. Firmly established, she did something that for her was quite unusual. She agreed to take on four nurses from the New York mason's mission but the decision brought repercussions one of the nurses a miss ada smith arrived and announced she was to replace barton as nurse and diet manager furious clara believed her world had been invaded word then came from new york that smith was in error and was soon transferred to another assignment reassured, Barton was again unofficial matron of the 10th Army Corps Hospital. There, she and assistants baked 700 loaves of bread, brewed 170 gallons of coffee, prepared 30 large hams, cooked barrels of sliced pork, and two wash boilers of tea. That was for breakfast. For lunch, 200 gallons of soup made with three barrels of potatoes, two barrels of turnips, two barrels of onions, two of squash, a wash boiler of whiskey sauce for 100 gallons of minute pudding and 150 gallons of codfish. For supper, 200 gallons of rice with sauce, 200 gallons of tea, and toast for a thousand. Barton herself baked her specialty, apple pie, 90 of them. All that each day. She even developed what was called the art of scientific cooking. Her cooks piled eggs on a long table, and by striking each one with the edge of a knife, categorized each. The best went for omelets. Second best were for custards. Third best for cornstarch and the worst thrown away. By mid-September, her glowing reputation spread to Grant's new headquarters at City Point, Virginia. When her 43rd birthday rolled round, her boys serenaded her. And yet, there were new obstacles instigated by an old source. Her brother needed her. He had gotten into the cotton trade and, sensing profit, wanted to return to union-held eastern North Carolina, and this appalled Clara. At about the same time, her world at Bermuda 100 started to take hits. Butler, who empowered and respected her, was transferred, and a kindly patron at the hospital, a Dr. Kittinger, resigned. With reassignments, she realized it was time to go. On January the 10th, 1865, she took a final ride along the Union lines, distributed all her remaining stores, and after saying goodbye to each patient, she left for Washington City on the 12th. After six and a half months there, she left for Massachusetts, but it wasn't long before she felt, as she put it, Dull. Then came word that prisoner exchanges were back and thousands were being brought to Annapolis, Maryland and a place called Camp Parole. For months, Barton had received countless letters asking her to locate missing loved ones. So she entered a new role on the grounds of the United States Naval Academy. She went to explore and on a chance encounter met Dorothea Dix. It must have been cold for Barton never mentioned her or the visit in her journal. At Annapolis, she wanted to make a list of those union parolees there and ask them of others they had been imprisoned with. To validate this new role, she needed someone to okay her mission. While she waited, bad news arrived. On March the 10th, she lost her brother, Stephen pained her to learn that her brother's property in North Carolina, valued at $30,000, had been burned not by Confederates, but by Federals in an effort to signal federal gunboats during an April 1864 raid up North Carolina's Chowan River. Despite the action, the United States government refused to compensate the loss. Things, however, brightened somewhat soon thereafter. She got the go-ahead for her new endeavor, and it came from none other than Abraham Lincoln. On March 23, 1865, armed with his blessing, she began the task of locating missing soldiers. 360 letters were waiting for her. 100 more each day was the norm overwhelmed military red tape added to the weight of her task in an effort to aid her she was given a facility where she could work but timing was crucial military events were racing and they took priority over letters from home it came to a head on april the 9th appomattox and six days later mr lincoln was gone Her journal on April the 16th, 1865, included, I was quiet all day. On the 20th, she stood in the long lines to see him once more. Despite the nation's grief, there was time set aside to celebrate the war's end. In the nation's capital on May 23rd and 24th, there was staged the grand reviews of the armies. On the second day, she watched the great United States Sanitary Commission nurse Mother Bickerdike lead Sherman's old 15th Corps down Pennsylvania Avenue. While she marched, Barton only watched. Disappointed, she realized though the war was over, there was still much to do, so she returned to Annapolis. There she began to hire assistants, compensating them from her father's inheritance. Certainly she thought. Congress will repay her for her expenses. Of all the names she received, Barton could only ID about one out of every 30 missing. Though camp parole eventually closed and her work ended, new President Andrew Johnson agreed to publish her findings and that prompted a new barrage of letters, some 150 a day. Some solved riddles, many created new ones. Then, in late June, a new crusade, but from an odd quarter. From a hotel in Washington City, a letter from a 20-year-old Dorrance Atwater. Slender with blue eyes, light brown hair, beardless, and seemingly always wearing a sad smile, he had something that was quite unusual and important. A handmade copy of the death register from the Confederate prisoner of war site Camp Sumter in Andersonville, Georgia. It included 12,658 names. Captured at Boonesboro, Maryland after Gettysburg, he had been sent to Belle Isle in Richmond, then south to Andersonville. At each place, he kept a record, updating it when Confederate surgeons weren't around. He had names units, disease record, cause and date of death, and mass grave number. When transferred to Columbia, South Carolina late in the war, he smuggled out his list by hiding it in his belongings. Wanting to go to Andersonville, Barton visited Secretary of War Stanton, who approved the trip. The two, Atwater and Barton, with his Andersonville list wanted to identify the thousands who had died there. Assistant Quartermaster in charge of military burials, Captain James M. Moore, was to leave the expedition, but did not want Barton or Atwater to go. On the deck of the transporting ship, he spouted, God damn it to hell! Some people don't deserve to go anywhere, and what in hell does she want to go for? The journey was tough, But after overcoming numerous logistical obstacles, all arrived about 12.30 p.m. on a blistering hot July 25, 1865. Upon arrival, perhaps, they could picture the horror that once had been there. Twenty-six and a half acres of hell. Barton must have, for the pilgrimage haunted her for the rest of her life. The dead were in mass graves of some 100 to 150 bodies to a trench. With Atwater's list, headboards were fashioned to make record of all who died. Despite their good intentions, Moore excluded both Barton and Atwater from the grounds while Moore's men excavated. After 6,000 headboards had been made and with Moore's men taking a day off, Barton and Atwater's inspection found numerous mistakes. They made more correct them. On August the 16th, the last tablet was completed. 12,461 men would now rest in peace. Only 451 bore the sad epitaph, Unknown. On the morning of August the 17th, Moore showed unusual graciousness by allowing Barton to join a common soldier in a flag-raising ceremony. With him, she helped to raise the flag. When it unfurled, all sang the Star Spangled Banner. She buried her face in her hands and cried. On the way back to Washington City, Moore snubbed both. Perhaps it was an omen, for when she returned, she learned her patent office job was gone yet again. Atwater was ordered to turn over his list to the War Department. When he refused, officials charged him with larceny and threw him in prison, the same prison that held Camp Sumter's Commandant, Henry Wirtz. Both Barton and Atwater seemed star-crossed. Harper's Weekly reported the Andersonville mission and mentioned Moore five times. Barton was mentioned once. Atwater, not at all. On the day of Moore's official report, September the 20th, she read in the New York Herald that Atwater had been convicted of theft, sentenced to 18 months of hard labor in New York's Auburn State Prison, fined $300, and dishonorably discharged. Incredible. From Union soldier to prisoner of war at Belle Isle and Andersonville, and now to a post-war state prison. Barton was out $7,533 of her own money, and 3,500 letters from bereaved families begged to be answered. To recoup her losses, she thought she might write a book like Louisa May Alcott's Hospital Sketches, but to publish it would cost some $10,000. Sadly, after all she had done, Clara Barton was out of work, out of money, and out of possibilities. She went home to see her brother, David, and found that only $228 remained of her inheritance. On December the 1st, she learned that more had been promoted in rank and responsibility. The next day, she learned that President Johnson had pardoned all prisoners convicted of court-martial crimes less than murder. That meant Atwater was released after serving two months of his sentence, but his discharge from the United States Army still read dishonorable. Seeking employment, she was rejected for every job in Washington City in which she applied. Christmas came 1865. At 44 years of age, she was without work and without anything to look forward to. Then, on February 14, 1866, Horace Greeley's New York Tribune published Atwater's Death Register as a 74-page pamphlet entitled, A List of the Union Soldiers Buried at Andersonville, and sold it for 25 cents. It was arranged alphabetically by state with grave number by each name and included a note from Atwater and Barton's report. Its publication created a sensation. Several papers now learned about Moore and his behavior and the government's high-handedness. One, the New York citizen, ran a story entitled, Greatest Outrage of the War. It seems justice had been served. Barton testified before the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, the only woman to do such. Congress, to reward her, voted her $15,000. That sum allowed Barton to open a missing men bureau, which she ran until 1868. To add to her income, two years later, she had hit the lecture circuit. Her presentation was entitled, Work, an Incident of Army Life. She commanded the same fee as Ralph Waldo Emerson, 75 to $100 per presentation. At each address, she asked members of the audience to look out for Union widows and orphans. And during her talks, she praised other women and their efforts. In 1898, another war, and at age 77, Clara Barton was in Cuba, helping men from both North and South, all Americans wounded in the Spanish-American War. Returning to her tireless searching for and locating missing Union soldiers back during the Civil War, Barton carefully noted that when the Missing Men Bureau closed in 1868, she had received 63,182 inquiries. Her bureau had written 41,855 letters, mailed 58,693 printed circulars, distributed 99,057 copies of her printed rolls, and identified some 22,000. And yes, we all know she was instrumental in founding the American Association of the Red Cross and most appropriately, was its first president. A pioneer, she helped to open the way for women to serve in battlefield hospitals. It is interesting to note that Florence Nightingale was never under fire when she worked during the Crimean War back in the 1850s. No one matched Barton's independent efforts to breach the gap between the home front and the needy soldier. All the more amazing, for her work was done without any institutional affiliation or official government appointment. Loved and respected for all her efforts, both were reinforced on countless occasions. At one of her lectures west of the Mississippi River, she recounted the night at Antietam where the surgeon ran out of candles. When she told the story of her retrieving four boxes of lanterns, a man stood from the audience and said, Ladies and gentlemen, if I never have acknowledged that favor, I will do it now, for I am that surgeon. At another presentation, a man with a limp approached with a little girl. He seemed vaguely familiar. She asked, Have we met before? He answered, At second Manassas, you entered my wagon and fed me. And wounded at Fredericksburg, you warmed me and kept me alive with heated bricks in the lacy yard. And at Petersburg, your whiskey and water. You're binding my head, and ice saved me from sunstroke. Barton nodded, and then she said, And is this your little girl? Yes, she is about three years old, and we named her Clara Barton. And there were many others. Like the man on Morris Island who she saved after he lost a limb, his daughter was named Clara Barton Leggett. And then there was a Clara Barton Whitaker and Thompson, Hoffman, Clausen, Berg, Gardner, and Bernard, each an incredible tribute. As she aged, Barton continued to be an advocate not only for the care of wounded soldiers in battle and a woman's place in that arena, but for equal rights for all men and women. Her life had been one of service to others, one of self-sacrifice, and a grateful nation has thanked her by placing monuments in her honor at Antietam, where she made her first appearance on an actual battlefield and at Andersonville, where her work under great duress was tendered in loving tribute to all those who had died at Camp Sumter. And indeed, the United States Postal Service has at least twice honored her, in 1948 and 1995 with her likeness on stamps. Clarissa Harlow Barton lost her battle with pneumonia on April 12, 1912, born on christmas day she died on easter sunday on the 51st anniversary of the first shots fired on fort sumter and only two days before the titanic sank she was 90 years of age her last words let me go let me go seemed to echo the same drive that many years before inspired her to accept and overcome so many challenges, so many obstacles. She had, without question, dedicated her life to helping those who could no longer help themselves. And for that lifetime of service, she will be remembered eternally for the way she wanted to be remembered as the soldier's friend. With the beginning of school semesters and academic years, we at Threads from the National Tapestry seize the moment to hopefully enlighten and educate. Next month, we'll use our time together to, if you will, hold an American Civil War Academy, a session to explain the nuts and bolts of the military fundamentals that were prevalent in the mid-19th century conflict. So, empty your backpack, sharpen your pencils, or fire up your computer as we prepare an introductory survey on Civil War Strategy and Tactics, Arms and Technology. I hope you'll be with us. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.
0: This podcast is sponsored by The Badge Maker, your go-to source for American Civil War Corps badges and other handmade, American-made historical reproductions. Contact the proprietor, Joseph Valicenti, and place your orders at www.civilwarcorebadges.com. That's www.civilwarcorpadges.com.